1 Peter 5, which is on page 11116. So I'll give you a chance just to turn. Therefore, as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of the Messiah and also a participant in the glory about to be revealed, I exhort the elders among you, shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion but freely, according to God's will, not for the money but eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted to you but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. In the same way, you younger men, be subject to the elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your care on him, because he cares about you. Be serious, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him and be firm in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. Now the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, will personally restore, establish, strengthen and support you after you have suffered a little. The dominion belongs to him forever. Amen. I have written you this brief letter through Silvanus, I know him to be a faithful brother, to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Take your stand in it. The church in Babylon, also chosen, sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Nice to be back with you this morning. Uh, thanks for your love and care of the past, I was going to say two weeks, but for the last four months, isn't it? Um, Rachel's is here this morning and little Micah is here as well. So we're really thankful for our church family for the way you've cared for us. I want to start uh, this morning by sharing with you uh, the highs and lows of being a pastor. What are some of the highs of being a pastor of a church? I reckon the biggest high is seeing someone come to faith. You know, seeing the unbeliever understand the gospel of grace, see them being born again, there's nothing better than that, is there? Seeing people come into the kingdom. I love as a pastor seeing people grow in their faith and thrive and flourish. I love it when they love the scriptures and you see them devouring the Bible and growing in their relationship with Jesus. And I love how you see the Spirit transform people's lives. You see people change. What an honor to walk alongside people as you see the Spirit at work changing people. As a pastor, I love it how people make wise, godly, kingdom decisions. The choices that some of you guys make for the sake of the kingdom. I love it when I see people marry well, parenting well, thriving as a, as a single person well. I love it when people just keep on trusting in Jesus and you're growing and you're 
thriving. And I love the stories of people who cling on to Jesus through the really tough times of life. And you see God refining them and holding on to them. One of the highs of being a pastor is you guys, people. So what are the lows of being a pastor? People. It's people who you know and love making foolish decisions. Decisions about a relationship or decisions about a property or about a career and you just see the impact that has on their Christian life. Seeing people drift, drift away from the church and then drift away from Christ. And nothing breaks your heart more as a pastor than seeing people wander totally away from Jesus. People who once sat here, once claimed to follow Jesus, and now they're nowhere. And that breaks your heart. It's an honor being a pastor. But it's hard. And Peter is a pastor, you know. The guy who wrote this letter, Pastor Churches. And you see his heart in verse 12 of our passage this morning, 5 verse 12. I have written you this brief letter through Silvanus to encourage you, to spur you on, and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Jesus really is the grace of God. So take your stand in it. Uh, Peter saying to the churches, stick with Jesus, stand firm in the gospel of grace. And I'm saying to you this morning, Kirribilli, stick with Jesus. Stand firm in the gospel of grace, Kirribilli. How are you going to do that? How are you going to make sure that you are there on the last day and I'm there on the last day and we get to spend all eternity together? How do you make sure that you don't drift and wander? There's two things this morning. Here's the first one. You need Christ-like leadership. Christ-centered leadership. God in his, I'm going to say wisdom, (laughs) I'm not sure what is wise. He places leaders over his church. People to shepherd the flock and to keep people on a narrow path and to help you to make wise and godly choices. In this passage this morning, Peter uses three different words to describe the leaders. He used the word elder. That literally just means the older people, the people who have lived a bit by virtue of age and wisdom and maturity. They've got the authority to lead. He uses in verse 2 the word overseer. The person who guides and leads and directs. And, but his main word is the word shepherd or pastor. As you read verses 1 to 4 this morning, we're supposed to say, that's what we need for God's church. That's what our church needs. Not just community, but every church. And if you're a praying type, can you pray this for your leaders? So what's the calling of a leader? It's a beautiful calling in verse 2. To shepherd God's flock among you. Read that again. Shepherd God's flock among you. As a leader of a church, we're called to, to shepherd the flock. And notice in verse 2, he doesn't say, shepherd my flock. He says, shepherd God's flock. One of the key lessons as a pastor is that, is that this is not my church. This is God's church. And you are not my people. You are God's people. I love the way he says in verse 2, shepherd God's flock among you. 
That's so important. Isn't it? If, if your leaders are going to lead and model and help you, you can't do that from just rocking in, preaching a sermon and going home. You're supposed to be among you, living among you, sharing your life with you. There's loads of wrong ideas about pastoral leadership around. Friends, we are not entertainers, are we? Your pastor is not an entertainer here to tell you funny stories and to amuse you and just give you a dose of spiritual flavor to keep you going through the week. Your pastors are not CEOs. We're not here to run businesses and uh, have corporate structures and get business skills to get things done. And we as your pastors, we're not your spiritual butlers. <laughs> you know, we're not just here to, so you can come to and say, baptize me or marry me or when I'm sick, come and visit me. And we're certainly not your kings to rule over you. I think that's a massive danger today, these celebrity pastors who have like this reign over their church. Peter does not say rule as king over your people. He says, verse 2, shepherd your people. Shepherd the flock. And I can't think of a more compelling or beautiful image than to be a shepherd. Let me ask you, what, what do you think of when you hear the word shepherd? Can someone tell me? The shepherds cook. Shepherds gather. What else do shepherds do? care, they protect, they gather, they feed, they watch over. Anything else? They're gentle, but they're also firm when they need to be. Yeah. See, shepherds are not weak. Shepherds are strong and courageous, but caring and compassionate. Feeding, caring, protecting. Listen to this quote. On some high moor across which at night hyenas howl. When you meet the shepherd, you find him to be tired and weather-beaten and armed. Leaning on his staff and looking over his scattered sheep. He knows them all by name. He carries each one on his heart. And then you understand why Christ took him, the shepherd, as a model of leadership. Ever thought that God is your shepherd? Isn't that the image that God uses for himself? Now, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 77, God led his people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So again, God in his wisdom, he assigns to human leaders, to flawed people, that responsibility to shepherd his flock. It's a massive calling, isn't it? you pray for your pastor, can you pray this? Can we pray that we would lead under Christ? That's really important. Look at verse 4. Uh, when the chief shepherd appears. The chief shepherd is Jesus, isn't he? Jesus is the one who ultimately shepherds his flock. Not me, not Andy, not Dan, not Coley, not Sarah. Now, I, I find that really liberating, you know, because... I'm just here to teach Jesus' words, not my words, and I'm here to bring glory to Jesus, not to me. Do you remember when P 
Peter met the risen Lord Jesus on the beach in John chapter 21. Remember that chapter? It's a, it's a really strange chapter. Jesus has been risen and they're having breakfast on the beach and, uh, and Peter meets the risen Lord Jesus and, uh, and Jesus says, uh, asks Peter a question, doesn't he? He said, do you, do you love me, he says. And then Jesus says, feed my sheep. A uh, second time, do you love me, he says, feed my sheep. Do you love me, he says, of course I'll love you. Then feed my sheep. Now, now why does Jesus ask Peter if he loves him. Why doesn't Jesus just say to Peter, feed my sheep, shepherd the flock? Because unless you love Jesus, you will not shepherd the flock well. Unless your pastors love and adore and cherish their saviors, they will not lead his flock well. So if you want to pray for your pastors, pray that we love Jesus well. Pray that we bathe in the grace of Jesus. Pray that we walk closely with Jesus, because it would be of no benefit to you if your pastors and your leaders are not walking closely with Jesus. So we're to lead under Christ. We're to lead willingly. Verse 3. Shepherd God's flock among you, verse 2, sorry, not overseeing out of compulsion, but freely according to God's will. We don't lead because we must lead, but because we want to lead. Not an obligation, not a burden, but a joy. There's a lot of pastors out there who seem to lead with a kind of joyless duty. And I do wonder whether sometimes pastors should step aside for a year or two just to recapture their joy. So they can lead willingly again, not out of compulsion. We're to lead willingly, we're to lead eagerly, verse 2. Not for money, but eagerly. Not for what we can get out of the ministry, but for what we can give. Pastors need to care more about people's souls and their salaries. I've shared before, I've probably interviewed 80 to 100 people who have come out of Moore College or SMBC looking for assistant pastor's jobs over the past 11 years. And it's really quite sad. At that point in the interview where, you ask, where you're asked, rather, have you got any questions for me? The number of times the first question that people ask is, what's the financial package? What's the housing like? That's not 1 Peter 5, is it? We don't do it for the money. We do it for the love of Jesus and the love of his people. And we're called in verse 3 to set the example, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Because with leadership comes power, and power is easy to abuse. And I have to say that as I look at pastors today, there's a a lot of what I call bullies out there. (laughs) Using their authority, their spiritual power to abuse and to manipulate and to pull rank and to, in, to, to intimidate. And the role of the pastor is actually to set the example. Do you see that in verse 3? Being examples to the flock. The way that your pastors speak should be an example. The way that they serve should be an example. The choices and decisions we make should be an example. And we do it, verse 4, 
not for the earthly rewards, but because we are going to receive the reward of the unfading crown of glory. So will you pray for your leaders? For me, for Dan, for Andy, for Sarah, for Coralie, for Naomi. That we'd pastor, we'd shepherd this flock with integrity and truth and purity and humility. I need your prayers. So will you pray for us? It'd be no benefit to you if your leaders weren't like this. And I am sorry for the way that over the last 11 years here that I haven't done this well. So Christ-like, Christ-centered leadership. I do feel like the eyes are sort of staring at me, sort of judging me as to how I'm going. Now it's your turn. Christ-centered living. See in verse 5, there's three words, all of you. See that in verse 5? All of you clothe yourself with humility towards one another. That's not just your leaders, it's all of you. Every man, woman, boy and girl who calls himself a disciple of Jesus Christ. All of you clothe yourself with humility towards one another. Because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. If you're going to stand firm with Jesus, stick with Jesus, one key attribute is humility. See that verse 5? Clothe yourself with humility. Put on humility. He's saying, get rid of your pride, take off your pride and put on humility. Pride is a real danger in in, in, uh, ministry, I think. It's a real danger for leaders to become proud. But it's also a danger for all of us, isn't it? We do like to think that we are someone special, don't we? We all like to think that we're important. We like to think that our ideas are right and our thoughts are right. Me, 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 me. I wonder why in verse 5 he highlights young men. Maybe pride is a big danger for young men. Remember Peter, the guy who wrote this letter? How did God teach him a lesson in humility? Remember bold, arrogant Peter standing with Jesus saying, Lord, if everyone deserted you, I never would. I can do it. I'm going to be your biggest fan, Jesus. And what happened? As soon as the going got tough, what did Peter do? He disowned him three times. And then the cock crowed. What a lesson in humility that was for Peter. And I do wonder whether some of us need to learn that lesson. Maybe the cock needs to crow before you so you learn to be humble before God. Be less like the Pharisee saying, how good I am, and more like the tax collector saying, Lord, I'm just a sinner. Because God, verse 5, he resists the proud. It's a quote from Proverbs chapter 3. He resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Yeah, that, that's the key to humility. Bathe yourself in God's grace. Grasp God's grace and you will be humble. You're not better than the person next to you. And you're not worse. So how are, I, how are you and I going to cultivate humility? There's three ways in verse 6. The first way is this, to understand that God is the almighty one, that God is the all-powerful one, and you are not. See that in verse 6? Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. That's an important truth, isn't it? That God is able to do much more than you ever asked or imagined. 
that God is much bigger than you think and much mightier than you think. That you are not God, but he is. So humble yourself. You know, there's times in your life when the almighty God takes you through a valley or a trial. And you're thinking, what are you doing, God? The humble person says, I don't like it. But you're still God in every season. The, the second way the humble person shows humility is to recognize that God is in control of time, not us. See that in verse 6, under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time. He may raise you up at the proper time. We'd love that proper time to be now, wouldn't we? We'd love to get rid of all the trials and all the hardships now, but God doesn't promise that. At the proper time, he will exalt you, just like he did with Jesus. But that's not today, that's in eternity. And you're called to humbly walk with your God day after day after day. And and the third way that you are to be humble is to cast all your cares on him because he cares for you, verse 7. I love that verse. Casting all your cares on God because God cares about you. And he does, you know. God cares for you more than you'll ever know. He knows you intimately. He knows a word before it's on your tongue. He knows your heartaches and your pains and your sufferings. And one of the ways we humble ourselves before God is to allow him to carry our burdens. We allow him to carry our burdens because we cast our cares onto him. And I reckon that's a lesson that God's been teaching me these last four months as I've juggled single parenting with running a church and reaching hospital. And there are days when I've sat with my Bible having my quiet time, supposedly. And the Bible's been open, but I haven't been reading it. I've been planning how I'm going to cope with today. And at times I've sat down to pray over the last four months, but I haven't been praying. I've, I've been telling God how I'm going to cope with today. How stupid I am, thinking that I can carry my burdens. What would the humble person do there? Cast your cares on him. Lay your burdens down at the feet of Jesus. Let him carry your burdens. And I don't know what trials you're going through. I don't know what pain you're suffering at the moment. But please don't be proud. Please don't think that you can sort it and fix it and cope with it without God. It's not a sign of weakness, is it, to go to God and say, God, I need you. Would you carry this burden, please? Because I just can't. That's not weak. That's strong. And that's humble. So please... Get rid of your pride. Cast your burdens on him. Don't come to God with fancy words or carefully argue, argue doctrinal statements. Just say, God, I'm struggling. You know that word there, cast? Cast your cares on him. It's not the same word that you use when you cast a fishing line. You know when you cast a fishing line? The problem there is that you've still, still got control of the handle, haven't you? And you can decide when to wind it in. The word cast there is when you cast a net and you completely let go of it. 
You have no control over it. That's what God's asking you to do. Just let go of it. Cast it onto him. Saying, God, you are big enough and strong enough and I really need you. And that is humbling. I wonder whether the people closest to you, your best friend or your spouse or your parents, would would use that word humble to to describe you. That's what we're called to be, isn't it? Humble men and women. And the second thing is to stand firm or to resist. If we're going to stick with Jesus, we're going to see Jesus on the last day, if we're going to bathe in the grace of God, be alert, be serious, verse 8. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. And Peter finishes by saying, you've got an enemy, and he's a roaring lion. He's an adversary, verse 8. He's opposed to God. He's the father of lies. I don't know whether you've ever been on a safari. I was in South Africa when I was on safari. And it's wonderful. You're driving around in sort of a, this open car and you're looking at these, all these wild animals and you know, the, the giraffes are beautiful. <laughs> you ever seen a giraffe in the wild? It's just beautiful. And then the ranger says to you, oh, there's lions around here somewhere. And something happens within you. You kind of like, you tense up a bit. And your eyes are wide open. You're more alert. You go, whoa, lions in the wild. That is scary stuff. And Peter's saying to you and to me this morning, we're supposed to go through our Christian life like that. A little bit scared, alert, watchful. Not naive, because the devil is real and he is active. He is prowling around, looking for people to devour, looking to cause people to stumble and walk away from Christ. He says, verse 9, resist him, be firm in the faith. How will the devil cause you, tempt you to wander? I'll tell you how he does it. The devil will tell you lies about the gospel. He will tell you that the cross is not enough and God could not forgive you. He loves that lie. The devil will tell you that you don't need to pray. Not worth praying. And you know the prayerless Christian, they are easy prey, aren't they? And the devil will tell you that you don't need to keep on reading your Bible. I mean, come on, I know my Bible so well. I've been a Christian for five years, ten years, fifty years. I don't need to keep reading the Bible. And the wordless Christian is a sitting duck for the devil. And the devil will tell you, look, you don't need your church family. You can do it alone. It's Sunday mornings. It's hard to find a park. Go out for brunch instead. And the, the isolated Christian who is not part of a church family is a sitting duck for the devil. And the devil will blind you that the world really does satisfy. And it doesn't, you know. So be alert. Be watchful. Stand firm. And we're not scared of him, though, are we? We should never be scared of the devil because the Bible tells us that Jesus has defeated him, hasn't he? Isn't that what happened at Calvary? The devil was defeated. He was crushed. He was defeated. 
I love that verse in 1 John where it says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. If the Spirit is in you, it's greater than the devil. You don't need to be scared of him. Just be aware, just be alert. Put on your armor and stand firm. So I, I long to see the day when I can stand here and just talk about all the highs of being a pastor and just have stories of people coming to faith and growing in faith and flourishing their faith. Not reality though. People wander. People drift. You need to be alert and serious and self-controlled. But you know what? If it was all down to me as a pastor or Andy or Dan or Corley and Sarah to keep you in your faith, this calling to shepherd the flock, it would be unbearable, wouldn't it? We would spend our, our whole life thinking, you know, have I done enough? Have I taught enough? Have I cared enough? Have I discipled enough? And it would be utterly, utterly exhausting. And I do wonder why that's, whether that's why some pastors burn out, because they think it's all down to them. And I love the way that Peter ends his letter by reminding you, reminding me, it's God who will keep you. And it's God who will hold on to you to that last day. Let me finish with these verses and see if you can say a resounding amen. Now the God of all grace, verse 10, the God of all sufficient grace, grace to save, grace to meet your every circumstance, the God of all grace who has called you, he's called you to his eternal glory. Your name is written in the book of life. He will personally, see that word personally, isn't that beautiful? God himself personally will restore, establish and strengthen and support you after you've suffered a little while. So the dominion belongs to him forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this reminder this morning to stand firm in the gospel, to stick with Jesus. Father, I pray now for those that I know and those that are known to people here this morning who have wandered and drifted in their faith. Maybe you call them, call them in your own heart now. And we ask, Lord, that you would restore them, bring them back to Christ. Lord, forgive us for times when we are foolish, when we're not alert and we don't pray. Help us to keep on walking closely with Jesus until we see him face to face.